0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Compassionate Christian Voices, today and tomorrow. My name is Brian Elaine. I'm the founder of Compassionate Christianity and a few other projects. It's a pleasure to host this series of prominent Christian authors and activists. Um, Today is the ninth webinar in this series, and we will have additional webinars this Thursday and on Tuesday and Thursday next week. Joining us today are Kelly Douglas Brown, Parker J. Palmer, and Lisa Sharon Harper. The very Reverend Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas <coughs> serves as the dean of Episcopal Divinity School at Union Theological Seminary and the Bill and Judith Moyers Chair in Theology at Union. She's also a canon theologian at the Washington National Cathedral and theologian in residence at Trinity Church Wall Street. Dean Douglas's academic work has focused on women's theology, sexuality in the black church, and racial and social justice. She is the author of many articles and books including Resurrection and Hope, A Future Where Black Lives Matter, Stand Your Ground, Black Bodies and the Justice of God, and Sexuality in the Black Church, A Womanist Perspective. At the end of her 1980, excuse me, at the time of her 1983 ordination, Kelly was one of the first ten black women ordained in the Episcopal Church USA. She holds a Master's Degree in Theology and a PhD in Systematic Theology from Union Theological Seminary. Parker J. Palmer is a writer, speaker, and activist who focuses on issues of education, community, leadership, spirituality, and social change. He's founder and senior partner emeritus of the Center for Courage and Renewal, which offers long-term retreat programs for people in the serving professions, including teachers, administrators, physicians, philanthropists, nonprofit leaders, and clergy. He holds a PhD in sociology from the University of California, Berkeley, as well as 13 honorary doctorates two Distinguished Achievement Awards from the National Education Press Association, and an Award of Excellence from the Associated Church Press. Parker is the author of 10 books, including Healing the Heart of Democracy, Let Your Life Speak, and On the Brink of Everything. Parker's been named one of the 30 most influential senior leaders in higher education, was given the William Rainey Harper Award, and was named one of 25 visionaries who are changing the world. Lisa Sharon Harper leads training that increases clergy and community leaders' capacity to organize people of faith toward a just world. A prolific speaker, writer, and activist, Lisa is the founder and president of FreedomRoad.us, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap in our nation by designing forums and experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and common action. Lisa is the author of several books, including Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World, and How to Repair It All, The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right, and Forgive Us, Confessions of a Compromised Faith. A columnist at Sojourners Magazine and an Auburn Theological Seminary senior fellow, Lisa has appeared on TV One, Fox News Online, NPR, and Al Jazeera America, her writing's been featured in CNN Belief Blog, the National Civic Review, Sojourners, the Huffner, Huffington Post, Relevant Magazine, and Essence Magazine. Lisa earned her master's degree in human rights from Columbia University in New York and served as Sojourner's chief church engagement officer. She's been named one of the most 50 most powerful women religious leaders by the Huffington Post and received the Bridge Award from the Selma Center for Nonviolence Truth and Reconciliation. The Religion Communicators Council named a two-part series within Lisa's Freedom Road podcast as Best Radio and Podcast Series of the Year. So it is such an incredible honor to have the three of you here. All you have to do is just hear these incredible accomplishments that you've all made and uh, can't help but being impressed. And I'm very grateful for you spending some time with us and sharing your thoughts with everyone. So today I'm going to ask our panelists a series of questions, but if anyone else would like to ask um, something, please type your question into the Q&A box on the Zoom portal, and I'll be monitoring those as we go. So to get started, perhaps each of you could just start telling us a little bit about what your latest project might be, whether that's a book or, or something else that you've recently completed. And Kelly, I'd really appreciate it if we could start with you.
1: Well, uh, thank you, uh, Brian, and first of all, let me thank you again uh, for inviting me into this conversation and having the opportunity to be in conversation with uh, these two uh, wonderful uh, people and have the opportunity to learn uh, from them both, and Mm -hmm. so I thank you. So, think I what I'll talk about uh she took about my sort of latest work is my latest work which is as as you mentioned uh resurrection uh hope a future where black lives uh matter and uh that's the journey uh that I continue to be on uh and that book is a part of a journey and so you know when I wrote that book, and this journey is a journey about faith seeking understanding. And, you know, to do theology, who would know that Anselm, this 11th century theologian, would still speak quite strongly uh, to me as a theologian uh, in understanding that theology is really about trying to answer those questions of faith, that emerge in the context of our living. Resurrection Hope for me was about and is about trying to answer these questions of faith that have emerged in the context of my living as a black woman, as a black mother in a global, social, national context in which black life just seems not to matter. And so I was led to write this book. Uh, This book called me to it. I rarely sit down and say, oh, I'm gonna write this book or this is going to be my next project. I fight uh, writing books. I thought Stand Your Ground was the last book that I had in me that I would write. But uh, I was compelled to write this book from not simply who, because of who I was as a person of faith and a theologian, but because as well, who I was as a mother. And my sons continued question to me and, uh, from a young adult to now a uh, late 20-something, uh, six-foot lock-wearing Black man, uh, who continued to ask me if I really ever believed that Black lives would ever come to matter in this nation? And as he asked me that question, I also heard the question, the faith question underneath, because the fact that he could ask that question meant that he was also wondering if our lives really mattered to God and so i heard echoing in my mind this uh observation that james baldwin made some time ago that is actually speaks to black life and that is that every black person at some point in their life must come to the shock that the flag that they have pledged allegiance to, that the nation to which they have given their loyalty has not pledged allegiance to them, has not given its loyalty back to them. And I found myself wondering if the God in whom Black people had had faith, the God of Jesus Christ, the God in which I had had faith, if that God was as faithful to me as faithful to black people as we have been to that God. And so I was at this crisis of faith. Uh uh and that's what led me uh to write uh the book Resurrection Hope, a future or black lives matter. I'll stop there as we 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 can talk more about that journey uh if in fact um uh, uh, it's a part of the conversation, but that's the journey I'm on. And that's what propelled me into the book.
0: Well, thank you, Kelly. Uh, and thank you for doing that book. I mean, it's excellent. And we did, um, by the way, do a full interview with Kelly about that book a while back. So you can find that on our website, uh, actually on the writing for your life website There's amongst the list of uh, book interviews. So, so thank you very much, Kelly, for that. Parker, would you like to share next What what you've been up to?
2: Well, I'm so honored to be here, uh, Brian, with Kelly and and Lisa. And what what Kelly just said, the power and impact of what she just said, I think, uh, reveals why I feel honored to be part of this conversation uh, with both of these good people. Um, My most recent book is, I guess, two or three years old now. It's called On the Brink of Everything, Grace, Gravity, and Getting Old. Uh, you will notice that it doesn't isn't about getting old gracefully because I know nothing about that. <laughs> I feel like I'm uh, stumbling towards, uh, as I've done all my life, towards questions more than answers. But there was an interesting moment of resonance for me when Kelly was speaking because I suppose in some ways I hadn't thought of it this way before that. I think I wrote the book in part because there are a lot of elders in this country and in this world who are wondering if their lives matter anymore um, elders of of all colors and backgrounds and I wanted to say loudly and clearly, yes, they do big time uh, in fact, I think old age on the brink of everything, which is a title that um, i borrowed from one of my young activist friends who talked about how her one-and-a-half-year-old child walks around wide-eyed all the time because she's on the brink of everything. She's, she's discovering things for the, new time, uh, for, for, the, for the first time. And I think there's a kind of beginner's mind rediscovery that's possible in our elder years, those of us who are lucky enough to get there. Lots and lots of people don't get to be 83 the way I am. And so I regard that as a real privilege. And I want to live that privilege well and offer it up in service wherever I can. So one of the messages in the book is old is just another word for nothing left to lose. So don't retreat to the shallows. Get out there, take a deep dive into all kinds of things. And, and one of the things I take a deep dive into in the, in the book is white supremacy and white privilege. Um, I am convi- excuse me <clears throat> I am convinced, especially from the work I do with young activists of color, that white people talking to white people about race in America is a very important conversation. And I've been trying to uh, be a part of that conversation, sometimes participating in it, sometimes attempting to lead it um, by making my own declarations about what I've learned over the years about white privilege and white supremacy in my life, among other things saying that I think it's a real cop-out for white people to equate white supremacy with wearing a hood and burning a cross. It comes in all kinds of forms. And I don't know a single white person who doesn't have an unconscious form of that supremacist assumption inside him or her. And I say that only because I've worked hard to get down to the place where I can acknowledge and uh, confess such places in myself. All kinds of stuff in the book, including uh, encouragement to political engagement, and encouragements to engagement with deep self. Um, Thomas Merton, one of my great mentors, although I never met him, uh, mentors like the good folks on the screen right now who who come to teach you through books and articles and also come to feel like fellow travelers on the road. Um, So through Thomas Merton, that um, opportunity to understand that deep engagement with self and deep engagement with the world are not two different things. They they have to do with what I call life on the Mobius strip where the inner and outer surfaces of our lives, our actions, our decisions, our attitudes, and our activism keep merging into one another and co-creating what we fondly call reality, uh, which is not fixed and given. We have an opportunity uh, to shape and reshape at every moment of our lives. So with lots of gratitude uh, for the opportunity to be here, I'll lay it down there.
0: Well, thanks so much, Parker. You know, you've got a whole lifetime of incredible work that uh, we've all benefited from. So it's deeply appreciated. And uh, you're inspiring me to write that book that I've been thinking about, uh, Diary of an Old Entrepreneur, how to start a business at age 60, which is what I did when I started writing for your life. So we'll see about that later. But <laughs> in any event, Lisa, so glad for you to join us. I really appreciate the uh, opportunity to collaborate again with you. So tell us what uh, I know a lot about what you've been up to lately, but please share with everyone else. (laughs)
3: Well, thank you so much, Brian. It really has been awesome to partner with you in various ways over the last several months. Um, My latest project is the book Fortune. Um, It really has been a lifetime in the making. I started the research 30 years ago, uh, researching my family. And I didn't start it thinking I was going to write a book. I started it just thinking I need to know who I am. And as an African-American woman, that's a hard thing to do. Uh, it's a hard thing to trace your family, so I I literally just called my mom up after watching a movie that really moved me um, and said, "Okay, mom, I need to know who who was Grandpa, who was Great Grandpa." Grandmom said there was this thing in our family line. What do you know about that? And so I traced my very first family tree in 1991, and it had no names. It only had relationships and dates when people were born and when they died, we think, um, and and where they lived, and now. Uh, 30 years later, there's about 1600 people on our family tree. (laughs) And that's working with a genealogist and also working through DNA and matching and all of that kind of thing. Um, And it was in the middle of that search about a decade ago, when we discovered that we might be connected to this woman named Fortune Game McGee. Fortune lived in, she was born in 1687. And um, she was also mixed race. Her mother was Ulster um, Scott, and her father was Senegalese. I, we came to understand that on the, on the genealogy chart. It just said he was an enslaved African, um, but now I understand. No, he was Senegalese. His name was Sambo, and that name is a Senegalese name. It means second son, which gave me chills when I learned that. It tells me something of his story. Um, and he was likely um, put aboard a death ship, um, off the coast, uh, off in, on the Gambia River, hence the name Gam, which became game over time. And so fortune was taken to court in 1705 because of the very first race laws that passed in Maryland um, following two years after the very first race laws on this soil um, on, on Eng- in English territory. And so what we saw, what I saw in her story was that her story was not just hers. It was not just our family's story. This was America's story, America's story of race. And it helped me to understand the struggles of all the next generations, not even just from her line, but on all the branches of my family tree. So Fortune, the book, actually traces 10 generations of my family, starting with Fortune Game McGee and going all the way up to me, asking the question, how did this construct called race break us as a nation and break the world. And then in the last third, there's three essays on truth-telling, reparation, and forgiveness unto the beloved community um, as a way for us to ask the question, how do we repair what race broke in the world? So I'll stop there. I'm sure we can talk more about it, but I'll tell you what, when I when I saw those very first race laws and began to ask the question of how it might have um, been absorbed into um, Fortune's 18-year-old mixed-race body and the trauma that she suffered and all of the people who got who suffered from those very first race laws, I began to understand why January 6th happened.
0: Well, again, an, an incredible book, and um, I learned so much by reading it, so, so much about the history and things like that that you uncovered, and I had no idea about it. So Mm -hmm. thank you very much for that. And, again, we do have a a book interview um, with Lisa that's on our website as well. So I really invite people to to take a look at that, too. But, Lisa, could you also just say a couple words about the big press conference that you had in D.C. to support the reparations work that's going on in Congress?
3: Thank you so much for asking that. Yes. And we, we launched the book realizing that you know, we're in the middle of COVID era, so we can't necessarily go around the whole country speaking in all these different places. And it was also at the rise of Omicron before B2A or BA2, whatever it is. And, and so we realized, okay, we're going to have to do this online. So we had a whole month of online events with two in-person events that bookended the whole thing, um, starting at Ebenezer Baptist Church and ending in Puerto Rico, actually, with the Aspen Institute there. But the day after the Aspen Institute gathering, we, I gathered about, how many of there was, about 16 of my closest friends um, who are in the movement for, for racial justice and also particularly around reparations and truth-telling, um, including um, Representative Barbara Lee and Representative Sheila Jackson Lee um, and the leaders of the two reparations and truth-telling movements. Um, and we gathered uh, for, for a press conference at the National Press Center um, and, uh, and had a, a, a clarion call. Um, I think it was the day after the State of the Union address where reparations was not mentioned and where even truth-telling was not mentioned. Um, and the only reference to race was in the reality that we were now going to put forward um, the very first African-American Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, praise the Lord, but there's a lot more to be done than that. So so we held a press conference in order to call the nation and to call our representatives to pass H.R. 40 and H.Con Res. 19. These are two um, House resolutions, House bills that have the votes to pass, particularly H.R. 40 has the votes to pass now, but we're also calling on the president um, to, to pass it by executive order if necessary. So it was a really powerful time. So powerful. In fact, that we broke up the the conference into little bite-sized pieces that we then put out on Instagram and Facebook, um, throughout Lent as a black fortune Lenten series. So you can catch it there if you'd like.
0: It was just really a powerful event. So, um, you know, thank you so much for that, Lisa.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, What I want to get to next is that I know all of you, not only are great writers, but you're great readers. And so uh, I'd love for you to share with folks, you know, what you've been reading lately that's really had an impact on you. Um, Parker, maybe we could start with you this time.
2: Sure. Um, Well, I, I live in a house full of books. You can see some of them behind me. I think we all do. And my wife and I have, in the last few years, been giving a lot of them away to the public library and to other worthy projects in Madison, Wisconsin, where we live. Um, But it it, it occurred to me, I don't need to buy any more books or download any more books. I should reread some of the formative books (laughs) of of my younger years. And that's quite a long list. I saved all of them. Uh, they're dog-eared and heavily marked up. The, 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 the rereading I've been doing most recently has been in Thomas Merton, and it relates the, the particular stuff I've been rereading relates to the topics that we're exploring on this on this webinar. Um, you know, Merton early in his career, wrote a pious book called Seeds of Contemplation, and then New Seeds of Contemplation. It was beloved by many. Then he wrote a book about race called Seeds of Destruction, which was not beloved by many of those who loved him for Seeds of Contemplation. It often happens to people who get identified as, quote, spiritual writers, that if they start writing about the implications of their spirituality or their faith, um, people get upset with them who thought they were just good pious folks who weren't going to rock the boat and so Merton wrote seeds of destruction about what he saw in the early 60s as as the fire next time the the coming conflagration of the races fueled by white supremacy fueled by the same thing that fueled January 6th um, and he was taken to task for this uh, by, uh, white activists who, who said uh, we're on the front lines here in the early 60s we're making tracks we're making changes You know, we're working on a post-racial society we just don't see it and who are you Thomas Merton to comment this way when you're living in a hermitage in the hills of Kentucky out there in the woods uh, the protected life of a Trappist monk what, what they didn't know was a couple of things about Merton. One was that he was, because his, his friends in Kentucky would come to the, uh, to the woods and sneak stuff into him, notably fried chicken and beer, but also uh, recordings of the blues and of gospel music that he loved listening to, uh, that he was in dialogue through music and through other reading Uh, with what was going on uh, in the black liberation movement at that time. And they also did not know that it's possible in a life of deep contemplation to connect more profoundly with what's going on in the world than it sometimes is on the front lines of activism where a lot of ego gets involved and invoked And people start convincing themselves that everything is going to change when, in fact, this tragic gap between what is and what should and could be uh, has a long way to go, Uh, always has and always will. So by the end of the 60s, Merton was vindicated. One, One white activist, Martin Marty, who at one time was the editor of Christian Century, actually wrote a public apology to Merton for having uh, wrongly understood and interpreted uh, the book Seeds of Destruction. And Merton's, one of Merton's key themes here, which which I uh, find very powerful, is that if we don't, if we can't begin to come to terms with the alien within ourselves and And also more deeply for those, for people of faith, understand that God is the alien within ourselves. God is not a domestic house pet. God is not tame or tameable. Um, If we can't begin to deal with that, then we can't begin to deal with the quote alien or quote stranger in the world around us. And I think you know, in spiritual terms, that's a very powerful theme that casts a certain, uh, a very bright light on a church that likes to domesticate God, that likes to contain the experience of the holy, uh, that tends to drain that experience of anything radical or upsetting or, you know, tipping over of the tables or the norms. Um, And so that's, kind of a focus of contemplation for me and meditation for me um, as I reacquaint myself with the many works of Thomas Merton. And I'll just also add that every morning as part of my spiritual practice, I read poetry. I, uh, from poetry I get, um, I get insights that I cannot get from prose and occasionally from writing a poem I'll be able to say something that I cannot figure out how to say in prose. And so I read people like Marge Piercy and Langston Hughes and Gerard Manley Hopkins and Lucille Clifton and Naomi Shihab Nye, Mary Oliver and William Stafford. Um, Emily Dickinson once said, tell the truth, but tell it slant, because if you run right at it or stare right at it, it'll blind you and you won't even know won't even get a glimpse of the truth. Well, the poets, I think, serve me that way. They tell the truth, but they tell it slant. And they give my weak eyes a chance to adjust to the brightness that I hope someday to see beyond the glass darkly.
0: Mm. Wow. Well, thank you, Parker. I wish I could enjoy poetry the way that that you do. (laughs) Lisa, how about you? What, What have you been reading lately?
3: It's funny, I've actually been uh, reading for the first time, 1619 Project. I got the book. Um, I don't even think it's behind me. It's usually right behind me, but I'm, it's actually now up in my room because I've been reading it. And I'm reading it in preparation for, first of all, to, to go deeper even in, in my own study, but also in preparation for a pilgrimage that um, I'm doing along with, uh, we were commissioned, Freedom Road was commissioned by Trinity UCC to do an established 1619 pilgrimage through Charleston. Now, Charleston was not established 1619. It was a little bit later than that. But Charleston is the port through which the majority of African-Americans can trace their heritage having gone through that port. So we're taking 200, yes, count them 200 people, yes, on four buses um, through Charleston over the course, all over and around the area over the course of five days, uh, in in June, in two months, and so I wanted to make sure that um, that that I did have uh, um, Nicole Hannah Jones's input um, into the storytelling that we'll be doing acor- according, you know, throughout the time. Um, that's 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 the reading that I'm doing.
0: Wow, when is the bus trip taking place?
3: So it's taking place June 20 through 24. Um, it'll be starting and we're going through all freedom road pilgrimages go through a story we always start with a beginning a middle and we have a right now which actually leads us to advocacy in the end and so our story will trace the entry the subjugation and rebellion and then the rise of Africans on U.S. soil and um, so we will be on plantations we will be at the at Fort Moultrie which was right there at the entry point, and also the point for the Revolutionary War. We're gonna um, stand on the land where the Stony Rebellion happened, and also go to the Penn Center, where where there was amazing educational work that happened right after the Civil War, um, where um, people of African descent around the country actually came in order to free African-Americans, came to help um, teach English to enslaved Africans so that they could read, write, and vote.
0: Hmm. Wow. So are you going to be like blogging or, or video? You know, um, yeah, good. That's good, a great good.
3: question. Just today we were actually saying, yes, we need to do that.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We can all follow along. You know what I mean? Yeah. With, with your journey, even though we can't physically be there. Well, that'd be awesome.
3: Exactly. We've just been getting the, you know, everything else in, but now we actually have to get our blogger in place and we're <laughs> well,
0: yet another person. logistic thing, I'm sure, of the gazillion logistic things that are going to be difficult for that trip. But yeah, thank you for yeah. including that. Absolutely. <laughs> Kelly, how about you? What have you been reading lately?
1: Yes, thank you. First, at least I feel like we're running parallel lives here. So I look forward to <sighs> uh talking beyond this conversation even as you talk about truth and 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 reparations and the 1619 project which was our book read for our students uh in our cohort uh and so i read and reread and reread uh that project because there's so much there Mm. but what i am currently um reading and and i'm i'm like parker palmer and and lisa we're reading several things at once and so i'll uh talk about two books that have right now most struck me um maybe three but all very briefly comments about them one um is i'm rereading i read it some time ago uh and just reopened it to reread again, which is Leopold's Ghost uh, Mm. by Adam Horschild, which is about, uh, of course, Leopold II's uh, takeover, if you will, of uh, the Congo. And the reason that I picked it back up uh, is because you always forget sort of the details, but I remembered uh in the beginning the way the first human rights if you will international human rights struggle emerged from there from one man uh named edmund morrell who noticed in liverpool and he was watching ships come in he was he worked the shipyard just an ordinary man and he <laughs> watched these ships come in uh from uh the congo and he recognized that Uh, while things were coming in, nothing was going out. And he wondered, well, he said, something's wrong. He noticed there was this moral recognition that something was not right. And of course, it led him to recognize that they were actually trading in lives and the exploitation that was going on in the Congo. And that led... uh, this singular man with moral recognition and this sort of what I say, this moral instinct to know that this isn't right. And it took one man, uh to have that recognition that instinct and that courage uh to begin to mount a movement uh a moral movement if you will in response to what was going on in the congo for obvious reasons of what's going on in this uh country you Mm -hmm. would know why he he came back to the forefront of my mind and i reopened the book Mm -hmm. the uh other uh book that i have reopened uh is isabel wickles wilkerson's the warmth of other sons mm. right mm. and these are the stories like the 1619 project uh uh lisa that uh are now being sort of outlawed, if you will, oh, yeah. uh, in our schools. These stories that give us a window into who we are as a nation, and not only who we are as a nation, but the possibilities mm-hmm. of who we can become as a nation and as a people. And if we don't know these stories that are not the romanticized stories of who we are. We don't know these difficult and uncomfortable stories. Well, first of all, we're missing out on wisdom, the wisdom of resilience, the wisdom of hope, the wisdom of faith. And we're also missing out on understanding not only the realities of injustice, but what makes justice possible, right? Mm -hmm. And so I turn back to these stories of, which are letters of people, uh, Black people people who took part in the great migration, if you would, migrations from the uh, South uh, to the North. Because, again, I keep hearing my son's voice in my head uh, where he continues to say, up until even our conversation we had last week, Black people need to just get out of here. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and so what, 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 that's, you know, people in the South said, we got to get up and go. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We got to move. And mm-hmm. to begin mm-hmm. to understand, then now realizing, huh, maybe we got to move back. Where where <laughs> we, we going to go? Uh, uh, but really now trying to understand it was a movement that we understand now as a movement. But for the people taking part in it, it was people in search of a better way of being uh, in the world where their lives would would matter and to truly try to understand and that movement made our nation better and in, in in some respects so i i'm mm-hmm. back to isabel wilkerson's letters uh warmth of other sons and then finally i tell you one of the most moving books that i've read in the last couple of years uh and i've uh, is matthew desmond's evicted Mm-hmm. Uh, which is the story mm-hmm. of people who are caught in the cycle of eviction in this nation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and, you know, I always say we should never deprive from another that which we would not deprive ourselves of. hmm And then we should go about creating a world and society that doesn't deprive from another that which we would not deprive ourselves of. Mm -hmm. And none of us would deprive ourselves
3: Mm -hmm.
1: of a safe home to live in. Mm -hmm.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: Yet we deprive millions of people of that every day and then blame them for it. And no one, I don't believe anyone comes up in this world, comes into this world and says, I can't wait to grow up and be evicted over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And this is the most powerful book because it puts faces, names, and stories Mm -hmm. to people who are evicted every single day Mm -hmm. in this nation. Mm -hmm. And there should be no reason that people should not end their children. The stories, this is this is generational, right, of how these children get caught. And from the very beginning, they enter into circumstances in which their life is really charted for them because of this daggone, ridiculous, unethical, sinful uh, reality of eviction in this nation. And so that book, and particularly as this country has lifted the moratorium uh, on eviction uh, in this country. So those, those uh, are the books that speak to me right now and uh, the books that I have uh, been reading
0: and rereading. Wow, so how powerful. Thank you for sharing that, I'm adding my reading list uh, <laughs> as we speak. Let me just mention one real quick one that I just finished. It's called Filled to be Emptied, The Path to Liberation for Privileged People by Brandon Robertson. So again, an opportunity for me to, you know, learn and, and, and contemplate on, on that topic. So it was mm. very, very helpful, mm. um, but let's move on. Um, Lisa, maybe you can start us off on the next round. Um, you know, this is uh, intended to be a conversation about big issues, big things. Um, so what do you believe currently is the biggest thing, the biggest, um, most pressing issue that we as compassionate Christians should be dealing with.
3: Well, I I think that, I think you have to look at what's happening in Russia as an example, as a, as a clear manifestation of the spirit that many of us are trying to beat back all over the world. And I think that what's happening in Russia is that, Vladimir Putin is trying to resurrect the ghost of colonization. And he's trying to bring us back to that age of conquest, um, which we, many of us thought we were, we were past, we were done with. I mean, especially with, with, the, with the fall of apartheid being the last, last of the colonized areas around the world. Well, not last, but the last to fall big um, in the 1990s. Um, we thought that was done, and, and yet it's not done. We saw Crimea just be snatched, just snatched in 2014, and nobody did anything. And now we see, um, we see a, a nation taking aggressive move to snatch another nation and commit genocide and ethnic um, cleansing in the process. And I, you know, my my master's, my second master's was in human rights at Columbia University. And so all my bells and whistles are going off. But the thing that has really been striking me is that after 30 years of researching my family's story and, and thinking very deeply about the question of white supremacy and white patriarchy in America, it's clear to me that actually the story, the larger story that we are within, within America is the story of colonization that that is actually what we are fighting here. And it goes right down to the question of eviction. Um, Kelly, um, Cannon, Brown, Douglas, when you mentioned that, that hit me because one of the things, one of the themes that comes up again and again in Fortune is the removal from land. It's not only the Native American removals from land, but it's also African-American removals from land by by, um, eminent domain. And also by um, by just simply removing by by terror um, and uh, well by terror with the KKK and, and lynchings and and such and massacres. So the claiming of land, the 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 acquisition of land and people in order to exploit for resources is the thing that we are really in the middle of and that is the thing that needs to be beaten back and race and white supremacy is really only a tool it's a it's a it's a weapon in order to achieve the end goal which is complete control of land and resources it's colonization Um, and so when i ask the question then of what is the work of the church in that context in the context of really a struggle that's not just a struggle for white men to gain power, which is really, it's it's how we see it. It's how we experience it in America, but it's actually the struggle for complete control of the earth. It's really actually a war against God. It's actually a war by waged by white men who are European or European descent to war with God for supremacy on the earth because they are very willing to crush the image of God on the earth um, and to exploit that image for their own well-being. Um, when you look at the larger story, though, the question I have to ask is, well, how does this impact our faith? I think that the scripture itself was colonized. I think that our read of the scripture was colonized. I'm blown away when I think of the reality that not one European wrote one jot or tittle of the entire scripture not one and yet the locus of who gets to determine what is orthodox is in europe how could that be the locus of who gets to determine how these brown colonized indigenous people what they meant when they wrote x y and z happens to be the very people who colonized them (laughs) the people from white supremacist European empire, Rome and beyond. When you think Germany, you think even Switzerland, no, they did not own slaves, but they were huge financiers of the transatlantic slave trade. And even um, when you look at our, our fathers of our faith, and that's, that should be a clue right there that they're fathers of the faith. Hello. But you have Calvin and Luther. Calvin was in Switzerland and his, his Calvinism did not stop Switzerland from becoming a major financier of the transatlantic slave trade. That's a problem when you understand that the people that this faith is about were serially enslaved and colonized as they wrote most of, the, of that text or under the threat of colonization, as is the case with, with David, David and, um, and Solomon. So, I, you know, when I think about Um, What do we need to be what do we need to do over the next 10 years, um, the next decade, the next generation? What needs to happen is we need to be decolonizing our read of the scripture and we need to be pushing for the decolonization of our institutions and um, and the way that we do life together.
0: Our governance. How powerful. Um, th- thank you so much for that. You said several different things, Lisa, that I really appreciate it in terms of, you know, I hadn't really thought of it that way before, uh, at least not to the depth that you expressed it. So thank you very much for that. I mean, it really is a war against God. There's no other way to frame it you know, at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So Kelly, what what would you like to share?
1: Well, how do I follow uh, that? Because uh, I really think, uh, thank you, uh, Lisa, that you set sort of the meta frame uh for what we're talking about here and and i believe that you know when we talk about colonization and white supremacy these two things go together they are not they're they're intrinsically related to one another because that's what white supremacy does mm-hmm. uh what it means to be a white supremacist is that you're going to colonize the world and try to create it in your own image and expunge those people who don't reflect that notion of what it means to be human, that notion of what I call Anglo-Saxon exceptionalism. Uh, Mm -hmm. And and, and that's what we're seeing across uh, the globe. That's what, you know, Macron's trying to fight off. I mean, it's, uh, and, and fend it off, uh, in, in France in the last election, but just the reality mm-hmm. of this kind of white supremacist uh, politic and morality that's sweeping the globe. Let me just point out one thing before I uh, add my piece to it. When you talk, I think what's going on in Ukraine on many levels is reflective of a a wider issue and all of the intricate realities, not only in the way in which you spoke uh, to that so well, Lisa, but I remember my son and I, my book uh, reflects have conversations a lot via V text or uh, iPhone, you know, of that generation. And uh, he texted me late, uh, one night and he usually says, so have you seen the news? Uh, uh, and he's like, well, have you seen the news? And, and I'm like, and I know that means there's something uh, that I need to be thinking about uh, that he's going to push me on again, theologically or something. And I said, uh, well, I've seen it, but what did I not see? And he said, what's going on in Ukraine? And we've been talking about Ukraine for a while, but he just saw the images in Ukraine, of uh, them not allowing people of the African diaspora, yes, to right. get on buses and trains, oh. get out of there. Hmm. And his response was, "Here, are these people, and I use his words, are getting ready to be nuked into dinosaurs, and they still find time to be white racists." Hmm. Wow. What you, I've you seen that. What do you say about that? Hmm. And the fact, you know, we saw the images, of course, and then CNN didn't even note the images where you would see these lines of people getting on tra- on buses, and there would be a line with nothing but uh, black people in it. Now, this wasn't. Why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? No. There's a reason that that is a segregated line, and they didn't comment on it. It's like. There's an elephant in the room here, and so it's the elephant of race. It's the elephant of white supremacy that even even in these dire circumstances, people find a way to still allow this white supremacist instinct, Parker Palmer, to emerge, this white privilege, mm-hmm. to emerge and not to see these people who are blessed with ebony grace as human beings. hmm who too have families, who too need refuge from what you're talking about, uh, uh, Sharon, uh, uh, Lisa, in terms of what's going on uh, with Russia and colonization, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So I think this points to a deeper concern, and it is the concern of all of us who would claim to be people of faith, uh, people a part of faith and religious communities, and that Uh, There is a lack of moral clarity. Mm. We have lost our moral core and our clarity. That has been confused or overtaken by, however, corrupted by not simply political realities, but by these realities that give birth to things like white supremacy. We have lost, I think, our way Mm. human beings Humanity. Our humanity is inextricably connected to who we are as moral beings. And I declare, Brian, that really the heart of who we are, we know right from wrong. (laughs) But that doesn't mean we're going to do it. I remember uh, Archbishop, the late Archbishop Desmond Tutu would always uh, say that, you know, we are all children of God. That's a fact. That we act like it is not a fact. It's a, it's a, it's a call. And we no longer have the consistent moral voice in the public square. That is the job of those of us who would claim to be faith leaders, religious leaders. We are to be held accountable, not to the way things are, not to the status quo, not to our present realities and understandings and moral realities of what justice looks like. We are to be held accountable to the more just future of gods that we claim to believe in. And, And that's what we are supposed to make real, hold ourselves accountable to, to expand the moral imaginary of our world, of our society. Of who we are. And so that to me, and all of the issues that, that really we're uh, coming up against in this nation, which we're all going to end up being, in the words of my son, dinosaurs, uh, if in fact we don't begin to find a way to reclaim our humanity and Mm -hmm. to recognize the humanity in the person next to us that we are refusing to let get on the bus. Uh, uh, And that's the responsibility. We we got one job to do as faith leaders. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is to remind us of who God has not simply created us to be, but who God has called us into life to be. That's our one job. We, that's, all we, that's what we're supposed to do. And so we now need to get about the business of doing that and be the people that lead the way to a different future. And we did not.
0: Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. Well, what a call. <laughs> but we need, to, we need to listen to that call.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Parker, could you finish
2: us up? Hmm. <laughs> not, not likely. <laughs> and I don't think we should finish. Uh, it seems to me that I know this, this webinar has to end, but the conversation that Kelly and Lisa have, have, have initiated here, have carried on here, um, needs to go on and on and on. And I think the biggest challenge facing progressive Christianity, is the simple question, is there a congregation anywhere who would let this go on and on and on, not as a couple of invited lectures from two very engaging theologians, human beings, intellectuals, actors on the scene who embody what they're talking about, not as a A lecture, but as a deep engagement within the life of that congregation that has the potential to be transformational. Is there a congregation in the land where that would be possible? Hmm. If so, what's the number on that? My guess is it's very, very small. Very, very small. And precisely because of some of the dynamics of the colonization of Christianity, and the ownership of Christianity by white Mm -hmm. patriarchy and white supremacy, which incidentally goes hand in hand with an utter denial of anything vaguely resembling white privilege even, Mm -hmm. let alone supremacy. I don't have white privilege. I have a white cousin who didn't get the job he wanted. What about that? Easy. It's low hanging fruit, but... The, the conversation has to has to happen for there to be transformation and i think the simple raw uh, tragic fact of the matter is there are not many church spaces that are capable of holding this conversation mm. in a sustained and transformational way mm. i frankly don't think there are a lot of theological seminaries who are preparing leaders to be that kind of leader, to create congregational spaces that are anything other than kind of vaguely pastoral and and functional from a business standpoint. And I know that both Lisa and Kelly will share that concern, and they're more engaged in the heart of this enterprise than I am. Uh, This, again, is where Thomas Merton informs me and I just came prepared to read one quote from him, uh, which I think is strangely um, apropos at this moment when I'm filled with feeling energy for change, energy for engagement. And I suspect, Brian, that more than a few of the folks who've, who've listened to Kelly and Lisa are as well. So this is from Merton's uh, essay uh, called, or book called Raids on the Unspeakable, uh, a title I've always loved. Both of these good people have been making raids on the unspeakable during the last hour. And I love the fact that they're speaking it and embodying it. So here's Merton. This is of course the ultimate temptation of Christianity. To say that Christ has locked all the doors, has given one answer, settled everything and departed, leaving all life enclosed in the frightful consistency of a system outside of which there is seriousness and damnation, inside of which there is the intolerable flippancy of the saved, while nowhere is there any place left for the mystery of the freedom of divine mercy which alone is truly serious and worthy of being taken seriously. Hmm. I don't think you have to parse that for too long to understand that the that the the idolatrous attitude toward the gospel that Merton has just described is a is a product of the kind of white ownership of the enterprise that's been going on since almost since the beginning of Christian time, Mm -hmm. certainly since the fourth century. So I think the litmus test is right here, and it's pretty simple. Can you or can you not have this conversation in a sustained and transformational way? And maybe that would be one place to land this very large and important dialogue. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, it's clear that we could sustain a very meaningful conversation with you guys for hours. Um I wish we we could do that, but I have to think about, you know, how I want to continue and I certainly want to continue with the three of you. Um so we'll we'll circle back um, you know, at some point in the future to uh to talk more. But um but thank you all so much for this incredibly rich and deep um discussion. I just love you all. And, um, and love what you're doing and uh, thank you so much for uh, what you're bringing to the world to help us all um, because we dearly need it um, on thursday we're going to have three additional panelists sarah bessie brandon robertson and willard ashley uh, next tuesday we'll have matthew paul turner Kristen kirsten powers and mickey scott bay jones and then on uh, thursday May 5th, Leah Gunning-Francis, Mark Feldmeyer, and Daniel Bowman, Jr. So all of these are recorded. If you don't make them live, you can watch them uh, later, which is I know what most people do. Um, Kelly, Lisa, and Parker, I can't thank you enough for participating in this. Um, Please stay in touch and, you know, grace us with, you know, uh, your presence again.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks.
0: Thanks so much, everyone. Bye for now.